This is Customer Obsessed, the show that dives into the nitty-gritty challenges of entrepreneurship and genuine customer connection. In this episode, we're talking to Mark Makepeace, founder of the stock market index company, FTSE Russell. In our conversation, Mark shares the history of FTSE and how it changed how we invest in the stock market, the give and take relationship between private and public companies, and how and why companies around the world are beginning to invest more deeply in sustainability and stakeholder capitalism. Ready to get customer obsessed? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Customer Obsessed. Eric, how's it going? I'm well. We're on a roll. This is our second episode of the year, right? It is number two. And we are talking to Mark Makepeace, who was the founder of FTSE Russell. That's one of the world's leading global stock market index companies. He is now the new CEO of Wilshire Investment Group. For those of you who don't know, FTSE is a household name in the world of finance and really helped revolutionize how people invest in the stock market. And so we're really excited to talk to Mark about he and his team uh, built the company and how it's grown and what they did to make that such a success. But before we chat with him, Eric, you've got some finance education under your belt. And I've never asked you this before, but why did you decide to get your MBA in entrepreneurial finance? Well, that's taking me back quite a ways, Aaron. I'd have to like dig through <laughs> the cobwebs and figure out my reasoning. Maybe I could pull out like a notebook, like the, the pros and cons of going back to business school. But I did. I went back to business school after being in the workplace for probably five years. And I uh, went to NYU. I did it part-time and it was a great experience. The interesting thing about going to business school in New York City is that you I was a technology guy, but I was surrounded by finance people because at least back then, and this was in the early 90s, anyone getting their MBA in New York City was trying to get a better job on Wall Street. And I actually had no mm -hmm. interest in that. I was perfectly content working in the technology world. But the entrepreneurial finance piece was interesting because in business school, I found this program that kind of talked about how to start businesses and how to structure businesses and taught you just enough about accounting to allow you to do that. And I can't sit here and say that I had this vision of Blue Wolf back then, but at the very least, it gave me confidence to start a business. Mm -hmm. And then there were definitely certain principles that I learned through that process that helped. But our guest today has a much deeper background in finance, obviously, and not to gloss over it in the intro, Aaron, but, you know, FTSE and the whole concept of stock market indexes and index investing has really revolutionized the way money flows in our global economy, period. And Mark is probably one of a handful of individuals and leaders that were at the forefront of that movement. And I'm thrilled to have him as a guest because what a great story and what a great history that he's had and, and what a great influence he's had over really how capital flows in the global marketplace, which translates into how businesses are started and how capital is raised and how companies go public. It's almost democratized the way that capital is available for organizations to come about. So there's a long supply chain there, but 
I'm really excited to have Mark on today. Awesome. Well, let's bring him on. Hi, Mark. Welcome to Customer Obsessed. Hi there. Pleasure to meet you. Mark, you and I already know each other. (laughs) (laughs) We know each other really well. (laughs) How do you two know each other, Aaron? So I am actually very, very good friends with Mark's daughter, Claire. She was my little sis in our sorority at UCLA. And then actually, Mark, your company, FTSE, that was what enabled me to move out to New York. So Eric, we met and I got to work for Blue Wolf because I got my start in New York interning for FTSE's marketing department out of their New York office. And that was what you know, gave me the confidence and a bit of stability to go to a city where I really didn't know anybody and had just graduated college. It was still in the middle of the recession. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. And that definitely gave me a bit of grounding and experience and was was really great. We thought you were fantastic, Erin, and uh, we were only disappointed we couldn't convince you to stay. Well, I'm glad you did it, Mark, because I got to pick her up after that, and she was awesome <laughs> for us. <laughs> so just to give everyone a bit of background, so Mark Makepeace founded the stock market index company FTSE in 1995, and I know that not everyone is super familiar with the stock market. So to start, Mark, can you explain to everyone what an index is? Yes, in in very simple terms, an index really is just a a measure which tells you what a group of stocks, how they're performing. So in the US, if you think of the Dow Jones, that is an index of 30 companies. So if the Dow Jones is up 10%, it means that portfolio of companies, the value of those companies is up by 10%. That's why we all get excited when the Dow is up hundreds of points, because it means on the stock market, is uh, the shares that uh, make up the Dow Jones are, are, are rising. And of course, when the Dow Jones crashes and falls by hundreds of points, that means uh, the, the stocks that uh, are in that index, they also have fallen and therefore lost value. And what is the FTSE 100 as compared to the Dow Jones? The FTSE 100 is the largest 100 companies in the UK. So every country has a sort of what we call a headline index. So the the main largest companies in in that particular market. So you have the Dow Jones in the US and the S&P 500 in the US. In the UK, you have the FTSE 100. In Hong Kong, you have the Hang Seng. And in Japan, you have the Nikkei 225. And that's a way of just immediately seeing what is happening in each market around the world. So how did you get your start in finance and how did it lead to FTSE? Like, how did all of that get started? I have an unusual um, uh, background, really, for finance. So look, I grew up in the east part of London, which is a very sort of working area. Dagenham is known for the uh, Ford motor car plant. So when I was 16, my family had very little money. So I was asked to uh, work and and, um, help the family. So I started work at 16. I worked in some of the inner city areas in London, working for local government. 
And then I uh, surprisingly had an offer just as a clerk helping out in uh, the London Stock Exchange. And um, I took the job as a clerk and I was um, quickly promoted and became responsible for coordinating what was called Big Bang, which was a huge change in the city of London, which allowed international firms to operate there. Uh, and that really changed my career. And from there on, I sort of became very much involved in the way the financial world in the city of London changed. So I helped coordinate Big Bang, and then I went on to set up FTSE. What an amazing journey there. I have to start by asking you, Mark, growing up on the east side of London, what football team did you support? <laughs> I should have supported West Ham. My older brother supported West Ham. So my father told me to choose another club. So I chose Chelsea, who on the west side of London. Yeah. Uh, and it was, so uh, I, I think I got the better deal because I think West Ham have struggled for years and years. Yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, there was a small period of time in like the early 80s when West Ham had a decent club, but it's yeah. Chelsea's pretty much been the toast of the town for decades, right? They have. They have. When you think about, and this is all coming together for me now, like when you think about how most people invest today, they invest through index funds. And here in the U.S., you've got Vanguard and Fidelity and these big, huge... Yeah machines that are allocating capital across our economy in ways that didn't exist prior to the creation of organizations like FTSE, correct? That's right. That's right. Indices originally were just a measure of the market. So they told us the markets were going up or they were going down. But then index funds, as they began to follow the indices, I mean, that changed the industry. And behind that was the fact that new technology new data sources meant that the index providers could create indices which were much more suitable on which to run index funds. So index providers almost became the sort of outsourced fund manager. We were creating indices just for the index funds on which uh, you know, they could offer a lower cost way of investing. And that's why they became so popular. Yeah. I remember in business school, they taught you that markets are perfectly efficient. And I don't know that I still to this day completely buy that, but I understand the concept. And I think index investing has made that happen in, in many respects. I think that's true. Markets are efficient in the long term, but they go through periods where and it's difficult to predict these, but they go through periods when valuations come, you know, get out of line. Stock market bubbles. And, you know, there's talk today. Uh, are the tech companies? Is that a bubble? Is Tesla a bubble? But in the long term, markets are efficient. So any company that um, becomes overvalued, or any company that becomes undervalued should find its true value in the long term. And if it's difficult to predict when that correction will take place, then it makes it very difficult to outperform the indices. And therefore, the indices really is that if you believe in efficient markets in the long term and you believe that 
by buying an index fund, it is a much, much cheaper way of investing than investing through indices makes a lot of sense. So an organization like FTSE, who are their customers? Well, their customers are the big pension funds and the big institutional investors of the world who would, um, they move to indexation. So the vast majority of their funds were, were indexed. But also the fund managers that were creating mutual funds uh, and more recently exchange traded funds, ETFs. Mm-hmm. And ETFs issuers became a huge market for the index providers. And it was an innovation which allowed retail investors really to have a wide choice of index funds where they could trade them just as a stock. So that index fund became a stock which was traded on the stock exchange. And these ETFs became the most actively traded stocks in many markets. And so, Mark, going, uh, taking that a, a little bit further, I mean, you have a, with those uh, people as your customers, with those groups as your customers at an organization like FTSE, trust is a huge part of maintaining a really great relationship. And I know that in your book that uh, just came out in the UK and is coming out soon uh, in the US that tells the inside story of FTSE and its founding, you talk quite a bit about governance and its importance in maintaining that level of trust. Can you talk about that a little bit and how that is essential to what an index fund is and and does? Yeah, the trust element is essential, particularly in the the financial world. And the trust really reflects the values of the brand and the way the brand is perceived by the clients. So the fund managers who were using FTSE They were using us because their own clients were not just familiar with FTSE, but they trusted FTSE. So they had no hesitation in buying an index fund that was linked to a FTSE index. Now, achieving that trust, you know, is much more difficult than people um, realize because it's a huge investment And governance is probably the biggest part of that investment. It's not about just promoting a brand. It's ensuring that uh, when you're in the spotlight, the decisions you are making, particularly in the financial world, are understood and accepted. And that's quite difficult. So we spent a long time building a, a governance structure which involved a lot of the market, tried to cover all the stakeholders and had a huge amount of transparency. So every decision we took could be challenged, but we were also trying to make sure that when we made those decisions, we would carry with us a majority of those stakeholders. You could never carry everybody, but we were conscious that um, there was a need to maintain that trust If we did make a decision, people always thought that it was well thought out, it was unbiased, and that we were always trying to do the right thing. Because you can never get it right all the time. So you needed that um, trust to get you by when, when you did occasionally get it wrong. 
but they had to believe we were always going to try to do the right thing. And can you give us a particular example of a time that that played out? Yeah, some recent examples, particularly when, you know, FTSE was known for running global portfolios and decisions we took about when a country could be included. That would affect billions of dollars around the world. So some of the more controversial decisions then related to countries like China, Saudi Arabia. Now, we went through an extensive period working with the authorities in Saudi Arabia before announcing its promotion and inclusion in our global indices, which meant billions of dollars flowing in because the passive funds following our indices had to then buy the companies in Saudi Arabia. So we probably spent three years going through that assessment and ensuring that the standards, the governance standards in that country met our requirements. So we made that announcement. And then, of course, you had the problems in Saudi Arabia, Khashoggi and the murder that happened. And, of course, that was right in the middle of us implementing that change. So that was a difficult decision, not so much just in making that decision, but in implementing it because, you know, circumstances were changing and that could have adversely affected investors' image of us. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was difficult. And in the same way, when we promoted China, and we promoted China in stages and have taken our time, whereby really today only 25% of the eligible Chinese market is currently included in global benchmarks. And that's because as an index provider, FTSE is behaving in a very cautious way because we know some of the risks that exist for investors in having much greater exposure to that China market. That 25% of companies, Mark, are they held to the same standards when it comes to reporting requirements and transparency as a company that's listed in the UK or the US would be held to? Well, they're held to the same standards of similar markets. China is deemed an emerging market. So their standards do meet the standards of other emerging markets. The challenge is, of course, that standards are higher in developed markets and that China itself is a huge market. Right. So if you did include the whole of China, then investors' exposure to China would be much greater than their exposure to emerging markets, which do have lower standards. So it's trying to manage through those types of issues. Let me switch gears for a second. I mean, you've obviously seen a lot throughout your career and been very involved in how companies enter the public markets on a global basis. And I think we speak to a lot of entrepreneurs that are starting companies and, and you know have a vision for what their eventual exit might be or maybe have a vision for becoming a public company. And I think, you know, the past decade, we've seen less of that activity. There's been so much more going on in the private equity marketplace and in the M&A marketplace that the IPO marketplace hasn't been as attractive as it was maybe in the 10 years prior to that. But I do think if you look at the numbers, particularly over the last 18 months or so, there's been a whole slew of IPOs, at least here in North America. I can't comment on, on Europe and Asia. 
And it feels like the pendulum swinging back. It feels like for entrepreneurs, becoming a public company is now a route that is more attractive than it may have been over the past decade. And I guess I'd love to hear your commentary on that and also love to hear like, when is it right for a company to go public? What attributes do you think they need to have to be in a position to be successful with that route? There's a number of reasons why companies go public, but but we are, you know, if we think about um, what has changed in these markets is that money is cheap, much cheaper than it has been for a long time. And that is driving companies to stay private for much longer. They've got access to the investment they need. Therefore, their need to go public is to raise capital. They have less of a need to do that. So in the, in, in the past, you know, 10, 15 years ago, companies would have gone public at a, a much smaller size. Now, companies have stayed private for much longer. But when they come to the market, they are much bigger size. I mean, many of these are called the, uh, the tech unicorns, the sort of billion mm-hmm. plus companies. Whereas 10, 15 years ago, these companies would have perhaps come to the market at uh, 100 million. Now they come in at a billion plus. So that's the change. And it has changed the nature of the secondary market in a way, because the um, public markets have shrunk over the years compared to private markets. And private markets have become much, much bigger and important parts of where certainly the institutional investors put their money. And I think that will continue whilst we have low inflation and low interest rates because money is cheap. But the need for strong public markets is just as great as before. Companies need access to more capital as they get bigger. And really, it's then a a decision of the company as to whether to fund their continuing growth, they really need to go public. And for investors to exit, they need to go public. So the public markets fulfill a very, very important need, and the private markets cannot operate without them. So it is ensuring both private and public work well together. But whilst money is cheap, private markets will be much bigger. I think it's just the nature of the economic cycle we're in. That makes a lot of sense. I also think from my very simplistic view of it that the transparency and the governance and the reporting that the public markets demand is a vital component of allowing people to invest. And I've always gotten nervous that as the private markets have exploded, you're losing, at least here in North America, you're losing that transparency that, you know, Joe Kennedy drove for with the SEC after the Great Depression. Yeah, and that's a very important point because we've had companies coming to the public market where they're trying to keep some of the same sort of operating practices as the private market. So SNAP came to the US, but only issued shares with no voting rights. Now, FTSE stood up against that, and we did not include SNAP in our indices. And it was simply because we were trying to make a stand to say, that, look, if shareholders cannot vote, they cannot voice opposition to anything. And there are sort of minimum standards for public markets that I think are important to protect 
shareholders. And I think they will be challenged simply because as these sort of new tech companies are coming to the market a much larger scale, their demands on regulators and others are very much to loosen the protections for shareholders. And I don't think it's as simple as saying you can't allow it, but there will be no doubt one or two stocks where there will be problems. And I think there'll be pressure on the regulators to get the right balance, the right balance as to the protections needed in the public market for shareholders and some of the controls that the owners of these companies want being weakened. So, Mark, FTSE started out with just the FTSE 100 and then has since gone on to have all sorts of different types of indices. How many does it have right now and what goes into establishing a new index? (laughs) There's hundreds of thousands of indices. I think there's only 40,000 stocks that trade in the world and yet FTSE has hundreds of thousands of indices. Um, (laughs) So... (laughs) I'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing, but it it shows you the amount of choice investors have. And it also shows the amount of analysis that some investors want to undertake. Usually in creating an index, there has to be demand. There's no point creating an index that nobody wants or nobody uses. So there's usually an investor that is thinking about a particular theme or particular market that they want to cover who will approach one of the many index providers because now it is a very competitive market. And the index providers will continue to create these indices which pick up on those themes. And in fact, indexation now replicates active managers. So an active manager who was focused on a particular style, say he was focused on value stocks or growth stocks or companies which had high quality earnings, An index provider can recreate that, what we call active strategy, and can provide it as an index so that um, a fund manager can provide that as an ETF or mutual fund and do that at much lower cost because it's the index provider who is providing all the research that goes into providing that. And he can spread that cost across many, many clients, whereas an active manager has to bear all the cost of that research and pass that on to his clients. I have a question about one index series in particular that I think started in the early 2000s, I want to say, I could be wrong, but you started a sustainability index called FTSE for Good. And I would love to hear how that came about and what's happening with indexes like that now and kind of what you see the future of those being. The idea for FTSE for Good actually came from the actor, Roger Moore, 007. I was doing some work for UNICEF, helping raise funds for UNICEF. And Roger Moore was one of their ambassadors. And we had a dinner in Geneva to uh, investors in Switzerland. And um, I gave a speech, he gave a speech. Uh, At the end of the dinner, uh, I think when everyone had left, Roger and I were sitting at a table and we were drinking brandies and he got out a couple of cigars. So there we were sitting there drinking our brandies and smoking our cigars. And Roger said to me, Mark, he said, um, you really should do more 
for UNICEF and will raise money for UNICEF. And he said, I have an idea. He said, you calculate these indices where you're including all of these companies. He said, I think you should calculate an index that only includes good companies. And the money you make from that, you should give to UNICEF. And at the time, it may have been the brandy, but at the time that sounded like a really good idea. So um, <laughs> I, uh, I took that away. I promised Roger we would do it. But it, you know, one of the issues was creating the criteria. You know, what was a good company? So we got together some of the experts in the market and we tried to define what a good company would be. So we looked at companies' environmental records, we looked at their social records, and we looked at their governance records, ESG. And we put together criteria for determining what would be a good company. The only problem we found is our first set of criteria, the companies themselves rarely met that criteria. So we did not have enough companies to create an index. So we reduced some of the criteria and what we did is we published the criteria and then encouraged companies to change their practices to meet that criteria. We looked at originally the FTSE 100. When we first published the criteria, I think there was only a handful of stocks that met the criteria. Six months after engaging with companies, we had about half the index who met the criteria and we were able to launch an index. But it took a lot of hard work. But I did launch that index, FTSE for Good, and Roger Moore helped launch the index as well. And there was a wonderful picture on the front page of the Financial Times with Roger and I standing outside the London Stock Exchange, you know, sharing one of his jokes. And they put a picture of uh, the two of us on the front page. So Roger got his index and his money for UNICEF. <laughs> wow. It was worth the brandy. It was worth him buying your brandy. I mean, that's fascinating. I think we see a lot of companies that are kind of shifting their mindsets into this stakeholder capitalism mode, which I'm sure you've read yeah. some about, which talks about, you know, what are you doing for your local community? How are you making sure you're sustainable from an environmental perspective? And it's kind of shifted the focus from just the shareholder and brings this broader constituents of, of stakeholders together. Do you think that's scalable over the long haul for companies? Oh, I, I think it's essential. Uh, and I think investors have really picked up on this theme now, the institutional investors. I think companies that focus purely on profit and purely on the benefit for the shareholders, I think they're coming under enormous pressure. And I, I think all companies will need to think about a much wider impact that they have, not just on the environment, but a whole range of stakeholders. So we're in a world where it is a stakeholder now environment and a stakeholder capitalism. It goes beyond just the shareholders. And I think ESG as an investment topic has grown enormously. If you look at the investment flows into ETFs, you're seeing tremendous interest, particularly in climate change indices, but across ESG. And I think this is only going to continue to grow. I think the stakeholder capitalism is here to stay. And I think the best companies are already 
change their practices to behave in that way. That's amazing to hear from someone with your pedigree and history in the public markets. I don't think you could have a better endorsement, Aaron, for stakeholder capitalism than what we just heard right now. I definitely agree. And and Mark, I mean, speaking of those changes and kind of that trend for the future, you're now the CEO of Wilshire, and that is a new role for you. So I'd love to hear a bit about that and your current vision and trajectory and what's going on there. He's picking up on many of these themes we've been talking about. Wilshire has been around for 50 years, and Wilshire, the whole purpose of Wilshire is to try and improve the outcomes for investors. And they advise some of the biggest pension funds as well as corporate funds in the US. So they're a very, very important company based in Santa Monica, just outside LA. So it was a real honor to be asked to take on this role. But my beliefs are the same. It is, look, as we move to this stakeholder capitalism, as ESG becomes more important, as we go through a world which is constantly changing, the way in which you support institutional and retail investors is to try and make them aware of the issues of the future, not just the issues of today. And I think Wilshire has a very important role in educating and advising investors to ensure that they do get their the best outcome because that's important because their future retirement funds their you know their lifestyle is dependent on them making wise investment decisions and the public markets are only just one avenue for those investments uh, and we want to make sure that people understand all the options and can make wise choices which fit with their particular risk appetite and their particular investment needs. And so, Mark, my final question for you, one we always end on, and this is on the opposite side of the spectrum, it's our question about a work of fiction that has had an impact on you and why. So it could be a book, play, poem, whatever it is, but we'd love to hear about that from you. Growing up when I was young, you know, coming from my background, there were a number of books and songs that appealed to me that helped me have a different outlook on life. But I I suppose there's one I go back to. um, There's a poem. It's a well-known poem by Thomas Gray, which is elegy written in a country churchyard. And it was trying to make the point that even in some rural area, looking at people just out in the farms, all lives had a purpose, not just the wealthy or the popular. And there was one part of the poem I always sort of remember. And it goes, I think something like this is sort of the boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth ever gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour, the paths of glory lead back to the grave. And I think it's that last line I, I always remembered you know, growing up, whether you're rich or poor or, or famous or, or not known by anybody, but it, it's sort of, you know, all lives have value. And I think in today's society, I think that's, a, that's an important message. That's really beautiful. Thank you. You are the first guest we've had in our year plus of doing this that has read a poem. So that's uh, 
<laughs> it also reminds me of the one of the lines in uh, in Dead Poets Society, that film that Robin Williams was in, when he basically looks at his class and says, "Gentlemen, we'll all be feed for worms." Yeah, yeah. It's what you make of it. It is. Right? It is. It is. It's what you make of it. And I think that's just an attitude. Um, it's a great attitude to take through life. Well, we've really enjoyed having you on, Mark. I thank you so much for taking the time, and uh, particularly from uh, from the beautiful countryside in Tuscany. Hopefully, we get to meet you in person, or I get to meet you in person at some point. I would love that. <laughs> yes, thank you so no, much, Mark. Thank you both. Really enjoyed that. So I love that James Bond was the one who got Mark to create footsie for good and i think it's so encouraging to hear stories like that because to me it confirms that the tide is shifting in favor of all stakeholders and not just the investors yeah no that was what a what a story i don't have a story like that the cigar i wish i had a story like that (laughs) (laughs) no that was a great story and i think the other thing that since we conducted that interview a couple of weeks ago with mark this whole robin hood GameStop. Uh, oh my situation. god yes i just i was thinking about mark when that all went down and how you know mark was at the forefront of really helping to invent index investing and now we're in a situation today where you've got these micro traders like robin hood and you've got social media and you've got this incredible situation which is upending and disrupting markets again and who knows how this is going to play out but we had a history lesson today, and now we're in the real world uh, watching how markets react to disruption. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you buy any GameStop stock, Eric? No, but I didn't short it either. I'm a classic index investor, which the people that were betting on GameStop or betting against GameStop are not. You know, I think at the end of the day, it's like we have to continue to democratize all of these processes in our societies. And index investing was one way to do it. But what Robinhood has done is taking it even further. And it's like, get down to mm-hmm. the, you want to invest five bucks in something, go for it. You don't have to be able to afford, you know, a hundred dollar stock. And Obama did the same thing when he figured out how to raise money through micro donations. And mm-hmm. um, it's actually bringing more and more people and stakeholders into how, society works and and how money flows. And that's a good thing when it happens all of the sudden, it shows people how disruptive it is, just like Obama's election was disruptive, um, some would say. Anyhow, I digress. We went from money to politics. (laughs) But what a wonderful guy Mark is. And uh, I really, really was excited to have him on. One of the other things I think that stuck out to me from the interview was how he and his team took three years to introduce China into the FTSE indices. And I think it's really a pretty great example of the kind of vision, strategy, plan, framework in action on a pretty large scale. Yeah. Because I feel like so often the narrative in business is go, go, go. And there's this impression that change has to happen really quickly or not at all. And so I just thought it was a really interesting look into how 
big changes take a really long time and that it's okay and oftentimes necessary to have the patience to do that. Right. And I also think like today we live in this day and age of like fast or fail fast, fail early. Mm -hmm. And I totally believe in those principles, but there's certain things that you only get one shot at. Right. And bringing the China market into Butsy, you get one shot at it. And you're dealing with a different economy and a different culture and different political structure. And you have to be patient. There are certain things that you just, you can't fail. You have one chance. And I think they had one chance at that. And they obviously did it the right way. I totally agree that they absolutely had just the one shot. And you're right. They succeeded enormously with that. And I, I know they're still continuing to build out and grow in all of these developing markets. But just to pivot a little bit around this idea, right, that to fail early and, and fail often, I just feel like there's such intense pressure all of the time to innovate. And I mean, do you see that there might be a risk of innovating for innovation's sake rather than for actual meaningful progress? Always. Yeah, always. Like we've, there's been, <laughs> s- particularly in the software world that, you know, I'm obviously pretty familiar with. Most of this stuff doesn't get used ever. Like, yeah. And so the organizations that get inside of their customers' businesses, get inside of their customers' heads, and can see how automation can truly help an organization, they're the ones that are the most efficient innovators. If you had to pick between the efficient innovator and the abundant innovator, I think you'd pick the efficient innovator every time mm-hmm. because time and capital and markets, like it, everything moves at a pace where if you're efficient with your innovation strategies, which happens when you have a great vision and you've got a strategy to back up that vision and you've got a plan to tack towards that strategy. Like when you've got those three things going in your business, you will be an efficient innovator. Thanks for listening to our interview with Mark Makepeace. We'll share the resources and books we mentioned in the show notes at customerobsessed.net. And don't forget to sign up for the Customer Obsessed newsletter to stay up to date and get bonus clips and exclusive content. If you're a fan of the show, please leave us a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a customer-obsessed moment.